write your sonnet, Will? Meet young Will Shakespeare. I'm a sonnet to write. Sonnet? You mean a play? He's out of luck. I say this theater is closed. Notice will be posted. Out of money. I'm still out of money for this play. What is money to you and me? And out of ideas. I hear you have a new play for the curtain. What's it called? Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter. Hmm. Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifstecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by fellow medieval historian and returning guest, Murray Pardon, and by Cleo Doyle, scholar of early modern English literature, who are together hosts of the podcast Cleo slash Murray, a fan fiction podcast. And today we'll be talking about 1998 film Shakespeare in Love. So Murray, Cleo, welcome. Hello, thank Hello. you for having me on this podcast for a second time. Murray, yeah, this is I'm your finished. third. Oh, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it was so much fun. I forgot it happened. Exactly. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to or agreed to talk about this particular piece of media. So, Marie, why don't you get us started? Well, first of all, thank you for saying wanted to or agreed to, though I would like to say that I did want to and was not forced into this podcast. Um, so my name is Maria Pardon. I'm an assistant professor of history at Berea College in Berea, Kentucky, and I do not work on the early pondered period. However, I do work on the very end of the Middle Ages, um, the 15th mm-hmm. century, occasionally into the end of the 16th century, but I know woefully little about Shakespeare. So <laughs> I'm maybe not here from that aspect. However, I do have a lot of thoughts and feelings about fan fiction. Um, and given that this movie has some fan fiction-ish elements, um, yes. that maybe is why I'm here. But maybe I'm just here as a unit with Cleo, who actually does have Shakespeare knowledge. Sort of. As I was saying before we started recording, uh, I don't really work on Shakespeare, but I have taught him a lot. So hi, I'm Cleo. I'm a lecturer in early modern literature. Uh, my academic work is divided in sort of two pieces. One is uh, I work on stories about the invention of agriculture in late medieval and early modern literature. And the other is that I'm interested in the academic study of Taylor Swift. Uh, The first section is obviously much more relevant here. Um, (laughs) And I'm excited to be talking about this movie because I first watched it as like a 16 year old who was really interested in Shakespeare. And I learned about this movie and like sought it out. And I just loved it so much at the time. And I still have a soft spot in my heart for it. So I'm really excited to be here talking about it. And definitely Excellent. a much better movie than the last time I was on your podcast. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, yes, when you uh, you brought me the film Red Bad, uh, which, I still which feel like maybe I should apologize for. I'm not sure anyone had an enjoyable experience watching. Oh, <laughs> yeah, but I had a great time talking about it. True. <laughs> Today's media, Shakespeare in Love, came out in 1998. Uh, This is a Harvey Weinstein production, so boo. Uh, But it's also written by Tom Stoppard, which might explain why the dialogue is actually, like, really good. I have some positive and some negative feelings about this as a film, but I feel like the dialogue, I'm like, oh, oh, that's that's a good line. So thank you to Tom Stoppard, I think. It involves little, like, bits of Shakespeare dialogue as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I will say it's it's actually co-written by uh, yes. Mark Norman and Tom Stoppard, and it was actually Mark Norman's idea, apparently, and I don't know the whole history of when Stoppard was brought in or how much of it he wrote or co-wrote or rewrote, but I think that that is an interesting thing that it was to some degree written kind of by committee, although a very yeah. small committee, um, mm-hmm. and like who wrote what, I think is an interesting question. 
And also and one that actually kind of mimics what's going on in the story itself. Yeah. In the story, mm. We have this aspect of collaborative <clears throat> writing that people are kind of writing things based on what other people say around them or what's happening in their life. And that Shakespeare based on this has never come up with a character name in his life. Except for <laughs> Ethel, the pirate's daughter. <laughs> well, and not, not what he actually used in a play. Yeah, that doesn't go anywhere, I guess. Rest um, in peace, Ethel, the pirate's daughter. Yeah, uh, poor Ethel. Never got immortalized. <laughs> Starring Joseph Fiennes as William Shakespeare. And this was Joseph Fiennes vaguely smoldering Elizabethan era because he also plays in, I believe, this same year, Robert Dudley in the film Elizabeth. Oh. Hmm. Well, that was the... He had lots of chances to practice smoldering. Right. And also that in particular, in both of these films, he is the least dressed man in Elizabethan England in the sense that like his his like shirt is just so much more open. Like you see so much more of his collarbone than that of any other man. But I mean, it, maybe that's kind of nice that they aren't only doing things like that to female characters, because yeah. I feel like there's a tendency with period costume to make it like revealing or just like revealing in a more modern way than it would mm-hmm. be in the time period. So admirable that someone was like, we need to see this man's chest as well. Yeah, yeah. And that like his vibe, I feel like is very much like kind of the Elizabethan equivalent of like, I'm just gonna like really kind of like unbutton my blazer and I don't have a shirt under it. And you can kind of see my yeah. bra like... <laughs> well i think the costumes are really interesting because so i was watching there you can if you you can look up on youtube this like 45 minute short video uh this bonus bonus feature for the play that was co-made with miramax and the department of education and i think that this might fit into harvey weinstein's sort of broader oscar Mm -hmm. campaign because he really he campaigned really strongly to get this film too as it eventually went on to do win the best oscar against saving private ryan and so he may this may have been part of that i don't know but anyway it's this 45 minute uh video where a bunch of the actors from the film sort of come on and sort of say facts about shakespeare and how sort of historically accurate the film is and one of the things they talk about is the costumes and so they're talking about like sumptuary laws and what colors you're allowed to wear and how that played into designing the costumes but then if you actually Hmm. watch the film Gwyneth Paltrow's character changes from like men's clothes to like women's clothes including like stays and like a corset or whatever in like Mm -hmm. a second and so anyway so there it might not be as completely realistic as it actually promises (laughs) that it is but it's a fascinating mixture of like research and creativity like um, they chose to research yeah. some things but then on other things they were like nope we just we just want to do this and they're like we'll do the research we're not necessarily going to pay attention to the research but we are going to do the research it's like kind of the vibe i think yeah, yeah and in actually i think that works beautifully in many ways because i think mm-hmm. that this is clearly written by whether it's mark norman or as i suspect tom stoppard someone who knows a great deal about the elizabethan theater and is very mm-hmm like well able to like not just sort of talk about it but joke about it and like make mm-hmm. sort of deep cut jokes about Elizabeth yeah. theatrical conventions yeah and this did so as you said right this won the oscar for best picture it also did win the oscar for best costume design and uh it won two acting awards so gwyneth paltrow won actually uh beating out kate blanchett as elizabeth 
uh, one for playing Viola de Lesseps. And uh, we, we could have had a two Queen Elizabeth year because Judy Dench did win Best Supporting Actress for playing Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, to be honest, I, I should have done my research before coming on this podcast. I didn't realize this swept the Academy Awards like that. Um, that's a little bit surprising. I thought it was good. I don't know if I thought it was that good. That's kind of my feeling ultimately is that I think it's good. I don't think it is seven Academy Award yeah. wins. I mean, maybe it's good. just I'm hearing something was super successful. I automatically want to tear it down. And maybe that doesn't say something very good about me. Um, but seven Academy Awards is a lot. <laughs> Yeah, and it was nominated for more. This is the thing about is that this was like single-handedly, this was, I mean, it's very disturbing now, but this was Harvey Weinstein's baby. And he Mm. it was a very deliberate campaign that he got to sort of get the cast out promoting it. Uh, he Mm -hmm. organized these events that were essentially bribery of academy (laughs) members. Uh he, I mean, he set out to get it all these Oscars, and he did. Um oh my gosh. Is that that the first time that that's really, that that had really, that there had been that much of an organized campaign for a film? It seems to be unusual. I was reading about Mm -hmm. it and it seems like articles were written sort of at the time. And then also later when all this stuff about Harvey Weinstein came out, sort of talking Mm -hmm. about, about this Oscar campaign as being especially uh, deliberate and and just targeted, but I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know enough about the movie industry to really know. Nor do I, despite having a film podcast, so. <laughs> How dare you not know everything about everything, Sarah? I yes. know. Yeah. We also have Jeffrey Rush as Philip Henslow. Uh, Colin Firth is Lord Wessex. Uh, always hurts my heart a little bit to see Colin Firth being, like, the bad guy. But, but kind of fun to see him playing yeah. against how he's usually expected. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he really, like, he's kind of like, he's like a mustache twirling villain, kind yes. of. Like, he's yeah, doing he's a solid job. He's clearly having a fun time here. Yeah, yeah. As is Ben um, Affleck. I think Ben Affleck oh my God. is also having a very fun time while filming this movie. <laughs> I think this is the highlight of Ben Affleck's entire career. I do. And I was like, I'm not usually the biggest Ben Affleck fan, but this is No. So I like, often... He's on camera. He's hilarious. I often actively dislike Ben Affleck. And here I was like, he's amazing. Like Ben Affleck, like should have won best supporting actor. I'm like, this is like, or at least like five lines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, this is like, like he like shines every time he's on stage. Like he is so good. He's good really good. I think his haircut is distractingly 1998 to me. <laughs> that is true. Starkly accurate, but I think that he that is true. It does seem like he just walked on to the set and just sort of played himself a little bit, but yeah, but it works. It, yeah, it does. Except like, for the haircut. I'm such a great actor. Yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah, is maybe a little iffy. Like I'm not an expert. No, he's. I don't. He's only like half-heartedly, I think, doing an accent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like he basically just sounds like Ben Affleck. Yeah, he didn't prepare for this. He was just like, oh. Also, wasn't he dating Gwyneth Paltrow when this was happening? So maybe he was just like, yes. hey, my girlfriend is in this movie. I'll just come and like hang out with her. Oh, you want me to be in a role? I'll just walk on the stage and say Yeah. <laughs> but like maybe maybe that's the secret of like getting a good performance out of Ben Affleck. You yeah, don't tell don't him he's in the movie. Him, don't have him prepare. Just put him on stage and be like, you're kind of a pompous jerk a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I think that really is the key. We also have uh, Imelda Staunton as nurse. So uh, uh, Professor Umbridge playing a uh, very sympathetic now role. I didn't know that was Professor Umbridge. Yes, it is. 
Oh. I thought she was great as the nurse. Um, yeah. She, yeah. The, that's a great performance. It could be such yeah. a forgettable character, but yeah. yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. She makes it very memorable and she has some really good moments. Uh, it, it is like, this is such a star studded cast too. I mean, so I just like, I didn't even write down everybody, but the other people I wanted to make sure to note were Tom Wilkinson as Hugh Fennyman, I thought was great. And uh, Rupert Everett as Kit Marlowe, who is, I, I kept looking, he's like, not he's like very low, weirdly low down in the credits. Well, he only has one scene. I ha- I'd yeah. forgotten because I-, I remembered him as being much more of a presence, but he, yeah. he kind of steals the movie with just like one mm-hmm. yeah. brief scene. <laughs> Similar to that. Yeah. Like, you're like, why did we yeah. have this person? <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, and so also he's the really good. relationship between and William, uh, him and William Shakespeare seemed kind of interesting and in that like they're like yeah. rivals, but also maybe a little bit of like a mentor as well. So like friendly rivals. Kind of nice. Yeah. And kind of collaborators. Uh, and my, my fun, my other fun fact that I learned is that they're like the exact same age. Oh, Shakespeare and Marlowe though. They were, they were oh. probably like born within like a couple of months oh, of each that's other. Cool. Yeah. Do we, so I, I have a stupid question. Um, uh, Did they know each other and like, how well did they know each other in like reality? My understanding, Cleo, do you know more about this? My sense is that like, we kind of assume they know each other, but I'm not sure that we have like active discussions of the subject. They overlap in London. Um, I don't know if we know, like, did they hang out? But uh, Marlowe's death. That's my question about my very technical question about all historical figures. Did they hang out? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Sadly, sadly, I don't know the answer to that. But Marlowe's death clearly affected Shakespeare very deeply. And Mm -hmm. As You Like It, which he writes shortly after Marlowe's death, contains a couple of references to it, actually. And so Mm -hmm. there's, um, there's one very clear reference, which is one character says, Great Shepherd, now I know thy saw of might or something, probably getting completely wrong, and like quotes Marlowe explicitly, he never loved that loved not at first sight. And then there's also maybe a passing reference to the manner of Marlowe's death in a line by Touchstone, mm-hmm. the clown who talks about a great reckoning in a little room. And so how do we read, you know, is that completely praising? Is it a little bit mocking? I don't think we know. And so I think that it's a really fertile ground for sort of thinking about what their relationship might've been like. And I love mm-hmm. this depiction of it because Shakespeare is jealous of Marlowe, but Marlowe is a really nice guy, which is such an interesting choice to make. And um, isn't yeah. that such a terrible feeling when you're really jealous of someone, but you're also kind of like them? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. I want to, uh, so sorry, I, I feel like I'm talking too much, um, no, but I did right sort of want to, okay, thank you. I, I say, as I talk over you, Marie, <laughs> <laughs> um, I did want to kind of flag something that I was wondering about, which is like, obviously, so Marlowe is sort of openly gay to the extent yes. that those words apply to an Elizabethan person, but you wouldn't really know that from watching this movie. And Shakespeare is canonically, I think, bisexual. I I would say definitely Shakespeare, you know, writes love sonnets to a man and a woman. And I was sort of thinking about the way in which the queerness of the characters does not come through or is, you know, is is deliberately Mm -hmm. minimized. I mean, we all know what the fan fiction about this movie is about. Well, yeah, of course. (laughs) No one should be surprised about that at all. So I find it really striking that so not only is that queerness minimized very intensively, but also there's even the like there's even a line that, you know, so right, we've got we have like Shakespeare has his play, whatever it is. And um, what play was it that they were that Viola watches at the beginning? 
two gentlemen of Verona, but for one, some yes. reason, one person in like in the beginning of this movie refers to it as one gentleman of Verona, which yes. I think is a joke, but I don't really get it <laughs> anyway. I know it's just a joke about how Shakespeare is really bad at coming up with like titles and character names. Maybe uh, and somebody at some point is like, what if it's two gentlemen of Verona? Uh, but that she's at this play and that's their first encounter with one another. And then she goes home and she's kind of talking about love and she says that stage love will never be true love because the roles are played by boys Mm. so indicating that we even have this statement made that we can never reproduce real romantic intense love on stage because it will always be between two men well and this continues too because she first kisses shakespeare when she's dressed as a boy and shakespeare thinks she's a boy and he's sort of shocked at this and then she runs off mm-hmm. and the boatman is like oh that's viola de lesseps yeah and i also woman. thought it was interesting that they didn't let his confusion last very long yeah. it was like as soon as they yes. get the character to appear immediately and be like don't worry everyone actually a lady don't worry you definitely didn't do anything gay and I mean, it also, also totally ruins the fun of like mistaken identity. Yes. Yeah. Like that was a very, film. yeah. Like that was a very brief plot line. And the other thing that I thought was interesting along those lines, since of course, you know, a major part of the film is Viola being dressed as a man and Shakespeare in, you know, from pretty early on knows that she is a woman and who she is, but most of the other people around them don't. And their relationship is, not a relationship that is a standard platonic relationship between the writer of a play and the lead actor in the play. It is very clearly a relationship where you can see that there is romantic and sexual attraction. Like they're constantly making out like in the back. Um, Yeah. What I wanted to see more of is like a sort of peanut gallery of like the other mm -hmm. actors commenting on this or being like, Shakespeare, stop writing all this like great love poetry for like the actor who you're clearly in love with slash hitting on. Yes. Yeah. And that like, it's not, and that like that bit, right. Where she's on stage and she's supposed to, she's Romeo and she's supposed to kiss Juliet and you know, they have their, let me show you how it's done. comes up on stage and in front of everybody like intensely makes out with her and like the fact that there's no commentary from the other people involved about like what's up with this relationship it just seems very much also it could be yes come on guys like you can do that at the tavern later like we're rehearsing now like i feel like there's like yes potential And, and my theory is that it's also really an intense erasure of queer possibilities that it like, doesn't even want anybody to think that like the, this could be men in a, in a romantic sexual relationship together. Like nobody can even entertain the possibility that like we have two gay men. It wouldn't occur to anyone ever. But what's interesting is that by not addressing it, by not saying anything, it's almost like it leaves it more possible or something like Mm -hmm. there's just something about like the silence about it that Mm -hmm. is I don't know like potentially leaves room for more sort of queer readings or something Mm -hmm. um but I do think I mean I do agree with you that the the movie is deliberately trying to not make us think that I mean there's one line of dialogue where like they're undressing each other and they're both dressed as men and she says I'm not accustomed to undressing a man and he's like me neither (laughs) which like they didn't need to write that they decided to write that it does seem like a deliberate like no homo (laughs) yeah 
And Tom Stoppard, so he has a history of doing this because he also wrote or co-wrote a screenplay based on the life of Alan Turing, in which he represents mm. the character of Turing, although I think he calls him something different as a straight man who like falls in love with a woman, whereas Al- the real Alan Turing was a, a gay man who yeah. yep. went through a lot like, of suffering. Also, like, because famously, I feel like yep. that's like, yeah. Yeah. a pretty big point in his biography in terms of how it affected his life. That's yeah. like 80% of what I personally know about Alan Turing. Yeah, so I do wonder whether there is, I, I don't know who wrote what, as I said, but I, I do wonder about this. Yeah, so that is that is definitely a kind of somewhat disappointing aspect. Let's talk about what we think, uh, so we've kind of led into the uh, the enumeratio or recap section, uh, where we kind of talk about what actually happens in this film. Let's talk about Shakespeare, that we we have him start out, he is uh, supposed to be working on the new comedy, uh, Romeo and Ethel, the Pirate's Daughter, <laughs> which, damn, damn, I wish we had Romeo and Ethel, the Pirate's Daughter. <laughs> yeah, how did that never make it to the stage? <laughs> Such a disappointment. And we've got a lot of kind of messiness happening in that he's kind of promised the play both to Philip Henslow and to, um, what's his name? Uh, oh, it's uh, Richard Burbage is, uh, so he's kind of sold the play to both of these people, but he has writer's block, so he doesn't have a play for anybody. Which was very relatable, the idea that you're supposed to have written something that you have not yet written. I think as academics, we can all, we oh, can yeah. all relate to William Shakespeare in that. Yeah. He also, so he's working on this play and he also, we have like a lot of these connections that are drawn between his writer's block and his lack of current sexual experience slash prowess. Because how can Uh, anyone be, you know, writing about love if they aren't in love themselves? Yeah. And his, his quill is just not getting the job done. (laughs) There's also a scene where he's, um, talking in like this very sort of modern therapist like way like he's like reclining on a couch and someone's like writing down his thoughts and asking him questions um and I thought that was interesting because I feel like there are a lot of points in the movie where they purposefully include an anachronism as a joke Mm -hmm. um which maybe is kind of a strategic move because then it sort of lets you off the hook for any historical inaccuracies because you're like oh well I'm just kind of making jokes yeah, that it also, like, at the beginning, there's, like, a mug that says, like, a gift from Stratford-upon-Avon yeah, that he has. Yes. <laughs> it was just, just yeah, very, so you like, know, oh, silly. Oh, putting in these little nods to, like, the modern day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we can, you know, to that extent, it kind of, yeah, does does that kind of work, I think, of, you know, you don't have to worry too much because the anachronisms are deliberate. Uh, but then it also kind of creates an interesting relationship between the ones that are and the ones that aren't. What did you think of Shakespeare as a character? Because I had that intense vibe of, man, if this person was not attractive and talented, nobody would be able to talk to him for longer than 45 seconds. But maybe it's because he's attractive and talented that he is so irritating. Because if everyone is willing to give you so much sort of space and grace and forgive you for things, maybe that's the kind of character that you develop into. But, you know, he seemed like he was kind of a mess. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, you're about 30 years old. Like, where the fuck up? <laughs> yeah, I do think there. So part of what this movie is doing is that it's sort of retelling the story of Romeo and Juliet. And Romeo is Shakespeare mm. in this case. And I guess and Romeo so I... is supposed to be sort of romantically flighty, right? 
Yeah. So I think that there might be a little bit of like Romeo's character bleeding into sort of running around, sort of hanging out with his friends, looking for women to fall in love with. And so I I wonder if that's a little bit what's going on with him. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also that like Romeo is what, 15? (laughs) I don't know. You're allowed to be a mess at 15, but you're not allowed to be a mess at 30. I mean, it's just like he he seems he seems maybe just like he should grow up just a little bit uh, as as an adult who ostensibly is supposed to have a job. I mean, well, he also like has a wife and kids. Yes. Yes. I was nodding. So I assume I'm correct. But yeah, so he has a wife and kids, but he's just like hanging out in London without them. So it seems like he's like purposely trying to live a flighty life. Like if yes. you're already going to sort of just like leave your family and go hang out in London, you would probably also be generally a flighty person and be in, yeah. in and out of relationships, in and out of debt, owing people mm-hmm. plays you haven't written yet, making promises you can't keep, wearing your shirt button down real low. <laughs> yeah. I also want to talk about debt. So Henslow, one of the people that he's promised to play about debt, to. Sarah. Of course I want to talk about debt. This is my main area of expertise <laughs> that is relevant to this film. So we open with, uh, it's like, it's very early in the film, right? That we get like Henslow, who is one of the theater owners and is like hoping to get this play that, and ultimately this is why he's now pressuring Shakespeare to hurry up and write this play is because it's what's going to get him out of debt. And he owes money to this money lender, Fennyman, who ends up then becoming a much, you know, a major character and ends up like being in the play. But... At we at the outset, we have Fennyman like literally torturing him mm-hmm. to kind of push the recovery of funds. Yeah, so I was a little bit confused about that just on the more sort of like narrative level of the character being introduced is not very nice. But then like at the end, he's kind of just this beloved guy a little bit. But I wasn't sure when exactly we were supposed to change our mind about him. It was just weird for me to be introduced to this character as torturing someone to pay him back. Like what a loan shark. Oh, but also he loves the theater and really wants to have a tiny bit role and is super excited. He's changed the magic of the theater. I think this movie really strongly believes in the theater's ability to like change Mm -hmm. minds and souls and personalities. And that's the power of true love. Yeah, it makes sense with somebody, something written, you know, by a playwright. But it also was something that to me also had these, you know, uncomfortable echoes of uh, the the one time I've taught Shakespeare is I constantly teach the Merchant of Venice because I teach a course on Jews, money and finance. And so we, you know, have this, of course, well-known Shakespeare play, which presents in particular in that context, a Jewish moneylender as being essentially kind of committed to this like brutality, right? That all that he kind of essentially says like the security for the loan, right? Is a pound of flesh mm-hmm. and that he is as happy, if not happier to torture and kill this person as to actually get the money because, you know, the, the torture is not actually getting Fennyman any money as far as we can tell, because the money doesn't exist. I don't know. I just had kind of an odd discomfort around that given the way in which the merchant of venice is arguably an overtly anti-semitic play that they could just kind of casual like indeed let's represent money lenders as these like extremely kind of violent brutal individuals even if in this context it's not specifically a jewish money lender i would say slightly rubbed me the wrong way also in the why what exactly is that doing for the rest of the narrative like i'm not really sure what yes. like why 
it's not as if that's like playing some sort of necessary role that then they're like callbacks to in the rest of the play or no. the rest of the movie or anything. So then no. sort of the question is maybe like, why, why is that where we start? I do yes. think that it is. So the reason they need to put on a play now is because Henslow needs to pay Fennyman. And so it, it does start the action of the play like and then they get wrapped up in like presenting the play and so on but that's like that serves as the thing that starts the story going which is like oh i need to get this play i need to put on this play because i need to get money Mm -hmm. but then also that that character what's his face fennyman no that were henslow henslow yeah i feel like he I don't know. He weirdly kind of like fades into the background. Like, cause he, it's like him, he's the one who like needs the money. So then we would expect that to be kind of what's being resolved. But at the end, is it not Shakespeare who gets the money from the bet? Yes. When it, when it would make more sense if he's the one, if it's like his financial issues that are driving the force of the plot, shouldn't that then be resolved at the end? Well, they, so he gets money he from is putting on the play. The he gets money from putting on the play. There, We know there are going to be no proceeds from that to pay the actors, but Shakespeare separately needs money. But then it's a good thing it was money. a bet. So, there, so there are multiple, no, there are multiple people who need money. There's the guy who wants to marry Viola de Lesseps needs money. There's Henslow who needs money and therefore puts on the play. And there's Shakespeare who needs money to become part of Burbage's theater company mm-hmm. and to graduate from being an actor to sort of being a full-time sort of part of that company and write, writing plays for it all all three of those money issues are resolved by the end of the movie i think yeah and i and i find this fascinating as a historian of credit that we do have this representation of this kind of constantly indebted society which is very realistic uh i think i don't actually know if it's realistic in elizabethan london i'm assuming it is but it certainly is realistic in the medieval mediterranean which is what i actually know things about so i'm going to assume it's realistic so we meet Viola, who shows up and kind of and attends this play and is, you know, very, very, very much enjoys it, despite the fact that, of course, it can't represent real love because it's two boys, ew. And she, you know, is having a great time and goes home and talks about how, you know, she wants to marry for poetry and adventure and love because it's the 16th century and she's never heard of an arranged marriage. Obviously. And... Of course, she doesn't want this to. This is why you shouldn't let girls go to attend theater. If you let girls yeah. go to the theater too often, this is what happens. Yeah, but yeah, so that she she doesn't want to just have to marry some dude for who wants her for her dad's money. Which best of luck to her on that. <laughs> and what do we think about Viola as a character? Um, Cleo, what well, do you think about Viola? You go first. I'm, I'm thinking. <laughs> I think that we know a couple of things about her, but we don't know why they're true. We know that she likes mm-hmm. Shakespeare's writing and that she's apparently memorized the speech from Two Gentlemen of Verona, perhaps from having only seen it once, although maybe she's seen it before or read the play. It's it's kind of not clear. And we know that she loves the theater so much she wants to sort of run off and try to be an actor, at least for a bit. But those are sort of plot points those are yes. not really character points yes i think Gwyneth paltrow plays her really well i i like her depiction of viola and i think she's a very sympathetic like to me she's a very sympathetic character but i'm not sure i could point to things that we actually know about her as it's written that make her yeah. sort of well-rounded in any way i think also it's yeah. clear that she wants like some some things but it's not clear sort of 
like exactly what she wants or how far she's willing to go to get them. Because I mean, she definitely, you know, it's like very brave that she's willing to go and like audition for a play and everything and have this whole sort of secret life. Um, But at the same time, like she also is the one who decides like, no, I'm going to actually get married. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. wonder, there is something interesting about her conflation of like, wanting the poetry of the theater Mm -hmm. and like wanting to be sort of intimate with Shakespeare that -hmm. feels like she's trying to work out like she's she she's gotten far enough to be like oh I want to be able to act on stage it's unfair that only men are allowed to act on stage but she hasn't got far enough to be like maybe I want to write like maybe I want to be a poet rather Mm -hmm. than to sleep with a poet or something so it feels Mm -hmm. like she's and I do think actually the 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 play allows us to, with its ending, allows us to mm-hmm. imagine her to continue growing as a person mm-hmm. and sort of thinking more about who she wants to be because mm-hmm. she goes off and colonizes North America. So <laughs> good for her. Um, but but like that's I, not problematic. She's quite young and like figuring mm-hmm. out yeah. still like who she is and what she wants to do. There's also yeah. this really interesting way in which their relationship is. For each of them, it's really kind of about themselves as opposed to the other person Mm -hmm. that for her, right, there's this way of, does she actually love William Shakespeare or does she love theater and writing? Mm -hmm. And for Shakespeare, I find it really fascinating that, you know, she kind of gives her audition and he's clearly captivated, you know, even at that time thinking that she's a man. And it seems like mostly what captivates him is the fact that she's giving the speech from his play yeah, as I was opposed about to, say, to everybody that, like, else. Everyone else was like, oh, was did Faust, did Dr. Arnold. Faustus. Yeah. 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 So everybody so else is like, oh, I'm falling in love with someone. Ships. Like I'm falling in love with someone because they're really, really into me, but also that they're sort of breathing yeah. life into my words. And throughout the time of their relationship, it seems like the play is very important in terms of their intimacy. The idea that mm-hmm. he's writing these like loving words for her to then say on stage, which I actually thought was, a little bit lovely in some ways that that's like an intimate relationship to have with someone that they're sort of writing these words for then you to put your craft in um but it does mean that your relationship is kind of built around something else and Mm -hmm. would it is is their relationship more about them sort of like producing great art yeah or is it about them sort of falling in love with each other but then a lot of the words he writes for her are just things she said to him that he like Uh And then puts yes. on stage for her to speak, mm-hmm. which is a really a further. So it sounds like Cleo, you want her to like become a playwright after this. Yeah, I think she should. I, I mean, but also I think they're Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Mm. And there's also like some really interesting like slippages, both in terms of like whose words are whose and also who speaks mm-hmm. the words that there's a lot. Uh, there actually is, uh, you know, so a lot of interesting like gender flipping that like they go back and forth in terms of like there's the words that are set on stage. And then they're also repeating the same words when it's the two of them, uh, you know, together having sex mm-hmm. and that then they're not, you know, they're not necessarily acting out their, you know, gender appropriate roles, right? And so there is this kind of really interesting, a lot of sort of slippage in terms of like language and who owns it and how is it gendered or not. But yeah, so they obviously start sleeping together. Big surprise. Um, oh, right, right. I forgot we're still doing a summer. Uh, yeah, we are. We are. There's a, this movie has a plot, you know. She kind of shows up and, you know, as Thomas Kent with her little false beard, she additions and ends up getting cast as Romeo. that I'm sure no one would ever see through. I right? and cast Thomas Kent as Romeo. Like, that feels like slight miscasting. I, why not cast Ned Allen or Shakespeare himself as Romeo? Maybe I'm, I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking too much about it, but. I absolutely would have cast Ned as Romeo. 
Right. Yeah. But anyway, like, but that needs to not happen for plot reasons. So. Obviously. Yes, yeah. obviously. <laughs> so yeah, I, I would have I would have cast her as Goliath. That would seem more logical when you're like very specifically like scouring people for having like vaguely feminine youthful features. And voices. And voices. Yeah, it seems like, though, I mean, I feel like the only way it would have made sense is if um, if she went on stage and very much like overdid her kind of like masculine nature. Like yeah. if she walked in, she walked in with like a really, really deep voice. Then it would be like, well, obviously she can't be Juliet. Well, there's she right. did, like she put on like a bit of a deep voice, but but it's not that deep. I mean, and so no. like you and and you have again yeah. this really yeah. interesting like, in terms her, of like, like gender costume. Also, her costume looks like a you know like attractive young boy. Whereas if you mm-hmm. know, I were like really concerned about like you know going on stage and people not knowing that I was a woman, I would have maybe like leaned into. I would have had like a giant beard or something, for example. Right. Yeah. Instead she's of like being, but but I think also because it's a movie, ash. they still want her to kind of like look pretty. Yeah. 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 But she, she looks very pretty the whole time. Like, yeah. They, yeah. They... Whereas like you could put on a giant beard, you could really mm-hmm. like, you could put on really, really bigger eyebrows and like long sideburns. Like there could have been more effort, <laughs> but they still want the audience to recognize yes. her very yes. clearly as Gwyneth Paltrow. I do wonder too, whether the implication is maybe that playing women is this really specialized thing that you might need a lot of training mm-hmm. for? And so you have the boy actor who- Because it is true, they only have parts. one. It's not even like they have an yeah. understudy. Mm-hmm. It's like we have like and the so, one person in our company who like, thank goodness he's up for the task. And when his so, voice yeah. breaks, we're dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I wonder if someone just sort of wandered in, you might not assume, mm-hmm. oh, this person can play a woman. Um, yeah, uh-huh. no, that's true. Maybe you'd be like, but I mean, he did give her like the otherwise starring role. So that's true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cast her as the lead this like complete Romeo I wonder maybe that's because she speaks the words of I think Proteus like one of the male leads in Two Gentlemen of Verona and so maybe he's like oh right she's clearly a male lead because that's who she's chosen Mm -hmm. to speak for but um so they have like have this you know these like moments Shakespeare actually kind of simultaneously falls for Thomas Kent and separately simultaneously falls for Viola there would be there was so much interesting room I think here for my favorite fan fiction trope, which is called identity porn, um, mm-hmm. which is not only in fan fiction. Obviously, this is obviously just like really common to rom coms in general. But when it's in fan fiction, people call it identity porn, and it's basically like mistaken identity things. Um, and so this is like I just wish that had lasted longer. Like I love that yeah boat where he's telling her like oh, but like to her as Thomas Kent, he's like oh Thomas Kent, I have so many feelings I want to tell you about Viola, who I'm in love with, and scenes like that I think are the height of comedy and unfortunately only last yes a few scenes in them. especially because like that's such a good scene because like his especially as he like kind of gets into it and his intensity and he's like have i mentioned her bosom <laughs> well and also the other thing that should have happened is that thomas kent should have interacted with like the earl of wessex who yes was trying to marry viola like that would also have been fun but yes 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 so much comedic potential there because also that would give her an opportunity to like sort of say things to him that she couldn't in her normal yes <laughs> yeah yeah especially because we also have that striking contrast right that there's you know Shakespeare in the boat when he's talking about her he really kind of like you know he's he's poetic right he's Shakespeare and then Wessex is like it was your eyes no your lips and then just like aggressively kisses her that would be hilarious if like (laughs) the Wessex guy is describing to Thomas Kent about how like oh yeah I guess I'm gonna like marry this girl or whatever for her money really good thing that's gonna work out but she kind of (laughs) sucks 
It's like, oh, she seems really annoying. Yeah. She's kind of hot, but like, yeah, she's a pain. Hot, but like, <laughs> he essentially says that to her face anyway. He's like, <laughs> well, I'm yeah. for my money yeah. and to produce yeah. snares. So maybe yeah. you need to do Maybe that. it wouldn't add that much intrigue. Unless there were a version of this where he was a little bit more like sort of considerate to her face and then it was only sort of through the guise of thomas kent that she kind of saw who he really was but this was not that movie this is very blatant characterization of people though i do like the idea that he that she could have said as thomas kent things that she couldn't say to him as herself i think yeah. that would be i would say the kind of comedy to some extent would be kind of allowing her to to be honest with him in a way that she couldn't otherwise yeah but on the other hand could a like lower class man actually be that honest to him? Mm, but maybe because she's not really a lower class man, maybe because she's a really an upper class woman, she kind of like doesn't have the same self-consciousness of how she can yeah. talk to him. Maybe she's yeah. just like, oh, in her mind, she's like, oh, well, now I'm a man now. I can say whatever, even though when yeah. she's like actually a lower class. Yeah. There's also a lot of class things that are happening here that I think the film is kind of not that interested in. Yeah, I was about to say, as soon as you said class things, I was like, are there class things in this film? And then I feel like the film mostly tried to sort of push class things to the side or kind of ignore class things or flatten class things. Like there's a lot that's there. The film just doesn't want to talk about them. I mean, because there's the dynamic of, of course, you know, Shakespeare is of a very different social Mm -hmm. stature from Viola, but also like Viola versus Wessex, right? That there is this like impoverished titled person versus this family who are like the nouveau riche. Mm -hmm. And that that's an interesting dynamic as well. And also kind of adds to her position in that her family, you know, they don't need money, but her family is in the position where it also, it seems like she's the only child. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of the kind of like, what has her father worked for? What it is, is to be able to have grandchildren who belong to the nobility. Mm-hmm. Which I guess would also be what she's kind of giving up or the sort of the duty to her family that she's giving up if she does pursue this sort of life of the theater, which maybe is a possibility, maybe also isn't a possibility. Um, it's unclear right. how much this is sort of a, I don't know, kind of flight of fancy or like a serious consideration that she might do. I mean, I guess anybody could run away and live on the streets and abandon your family and not have any money. Like, I mean, anyone can do it. You can do that. Yeah, we don't know what would happen if she did that Mm -hmm. in a way. Like, the the movie never tells us this is why that would be bad. And so, in a way, that leaves us not entirely understanding her choice to not do that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I feel like the stakes are somewhat like we vaguely maybe know what the stakes are but the stakes are also a little bit imagined they aren't sort of made explicit right it kind of is like the way we're left in the film it almost kind of seems to me like why doesn't she just like say i'm gonna live it like grab some cash take off and say i'm gonna live as thomas kent also what and would happen is... if she did though would her relationship with shakespeare survive or is their relationship only just based on having this very this sort of special intimacy of like writing together well, and maybe they'd still have that if they continue writing love stories forever, though. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> There'd I be mean, so many more Shakespeare in place. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it, it's complicated by the fact that so the the idea that he could marry her is raised a little bit at one point, and we learn pretty pretty quickly that he can't marry her because he's already married, and mm-hmm. so there's sort of an inherent obstacle there where if he were not married which is a historical fact that Shakespeare got married then yeah. left Stratford-upon-Avon and moved to London so they had to work with that right Bye, if bitch. he were not already married yeah <laughs> then then maybe they could do something about it but I think it's it's starting it's being set up as this impossible relationship because mm-hmm. I 
I guess it's not possible for us to imagine them living together ultimately yeah, outside of magic. That kind of reiterates the idea that the relationship only exists kind of through the confines of the play and then the play ends in, in a tragedy and then also their relationship ends in them not being together it's sort of like we have this relationship on stage but that's also all that our relationship is and that it isn't actually going to exist outside of it it's only going to exist in our imagination as i sort of go off to virginia <laughs> And also, I mean, the expression of that tragedy is so interesting because it's like, oh, you know, like, because he he kind of like, it's first, it's like, oh, yeah, now I'm writing a comedy. And then kind of gradually he's like, it's not a comedy. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you kind of go forward, then there's a, kind of this bit where it's basically like, so, you know, just so you know, my girlfriend. Uh, so I'm writing this play about these two lovers that, you know, are kind of basically us. But uh, so, you know, their love is doomed and then they both die. Isn't that great? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in terms of expectations around Shakespearean comedy, because comedies end in marriage. And we know mm-hmm. from the beginning, essentially, this Ooh, can't be the thing is it does end in marriage, just not the marriage. Or we want exactly, yes. it can't end in the marriage that we want to happen. So it ends in a different marriage. And then maybe he dies in the shipwreck. So it's fine. But I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> that's really true. She's happened. all alone on that beach. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think in some ways, it's telling us from the beginning, this is not going to be a comedy because it's not going to end in the marriage that you want to happen. But that said, this is an Elizabethan England where it seems people are perfectly happy to sleep together outside of wedlock anyway. And so again, yeah. it doesn't tell us why it yeah. would be bad for them to live together and not yeah, be married. Presumably, I mean, Shakespeare's already yeah. like hanging out in London, sleeping with lots of random women. He could yeah. do that and just be sleeping with her. And she could also just be like a sort of actor playwright type around the theaters yeah. she could live as thomas kent their quote roommates mm-hmm. and you know i mean that like that is an option it's an option which would involve giving up a lot of the yeah, I mean, kind of would, luxury and class trappings she's like used to drastic um, yeah but it yeah, is also, an option it's interesting that at the end it's i don't know i kind of felt like it was framed as like oh well you're legally married, so it's an impossibility. Like the queen sort of is there and she's like, well, you know, even I can't change a marriage in the eyes of God or whatever. And that's sort of the final word in a way that, I mean, like, yeah, she'd be also, giving up a lot, but it's also the not queen the who word. is the product of a second yeah, marriage. Like, <laughs> like, like, didn't your dad like make divorce a possibility to marry your mother? But maybe that's why she's against it. She's like, oh, that's too complicated. Yeah, no, we like, can't, we can't let other people do it. Yeah, that causes yeah, issues. yeah. But I just watched this. I'm like, can't, can't we do divorce? Actually, especially for like their marriage. I'm like, this is not like this isn't consummated because they've you know, been married for like three seconds. This is an annulment. An annulment yeah. has always been allowed. So yeah, I don't see why we can't annul this, but we couldn't have annulled this marriage and why we instead have to ship her off to Virginia. Yeah. Or she could just like run away. Like no one's forcing yeah. her to, but I don't know. Because yeah. she must, she has to be the beginning of America. She is, <laughs> Shakespeare caused America to happen. Okay. The yeah, United that States is, of that America. Is the main thing he, that I learned yeah, from this. <laughs> yeah. That is the moral of this, of this film. I mean, if Viola doesn't, you know, run the Atlantic slave trade, who will? Who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? Also, yeah. Speaking of like anachronisms, aren't there, there like aren't plantations in Virginia yet. Virginia's not a colony. Yeah. Plantations though, I think can refer to any sort of, uh, so plantations just in the broad sense as in colony, again, in the broad sense of going and setting up agriculture somewhere. I think you can talk about plantations in that sort of looser sense. But essentially, they're sort of heading off to not 
strictly like something called the colony of Virginia, I think. Although Virginia is not called, yeah, Virginia, I looked this up. Virginia is not chartered as a colony for another, let's see, I'm going to go to the other place in my notes where I actually wrote this down. It was chartered in 1606, which means that there are not in fact tobacco plantations that you would have established securely in Virginia in 1593. And I also like, I kind of touched on this before, but I also, I feel like very uncomfortable with the weird way that this reference to like add in, it's a weird thing to add in, especially add in that, like, it's not like that's like necessary for, especially because of, well, I mean, I just have weird feelings also about the way in which in terms of like the way that most people would potentially kind of think about this, right. That when you think about tobacco plantations in Virginia, the first thing I think of is slavery. And so what are they doing here? Are they trying to kind of quietly code him as a slave owner as a way of adding in that he's a bad person, which, okay, but then that's a kind of weird thing to do if you're not going to actually ever say that. And you're also going to not have a single non-white character in the film. Yeah. I have a question. Sorry, I am aware that this is not what any of us works on. Oh, no. But I have a question. So Sir Walter Raleigh called Virginia, Virginia after Queen Elizabeth, and he set up Roanoke at some point before the action of this film. Is that right? Because I think we're in like 1597 here. 1593 is when we are currently. So Roanoke is, uh, let me see, I'm, I'm going to do some, do some checking on this. Yeah. So the Roanoke colony would have already been a thing, but also maybe already lost. (laughs) It's also in North, Roanoke is actually also in North Carolina not, it's actually not Roanoke, Virginia. Yeah, but yeah, but I guess the question would be like, did they call it Virginia? My my thought was that there was like some land that he kind of pointed out and called Virginia, but that that's not actually where they lived. Mm. He was just like, somebody oh. should do that next. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, that's also kind of a side note because I 100% agree with you. Like even if, as I suspect, people were talking about going off and living in North America and setting up agriculture as plantations and setting up plantations, what and might not have specifically yet been thinking about sort of using enslaved people to do the agricultural labor. That is what we are thinking about when we hear that word um, and specifically applied to Virginia, for example. And so I agree with you, like setting aside the specific details, (laughs) um, 100% that that is a very weird choice for them to have made. Yeah. And in terms of these specific kind of historical details, then it's also weird in that it's, it, it's, it's very early for him to have like established plantations there, yeah, which is I what he makes what it sound like. Because you could be sort of vaguely heading to Virginia, but it sounded like he already had something sort of going on there. Yeah. My sense like is that. Like later on in time when it was already like a very established area. Yeah, historically, I think it would make more sense if he was like, I would like to go to the Americas and set up there as opposed to like, I've got this thing going and I just need to like ship a wife there. Yeah, I I mean, I want I I do think then that there is a specific relation, uh, there, there is a specific introduction uh, of America then because this is an American film being mm-hmm. made about British history and I think that there's a desire to like write America into it in some way, even yeah. when that doesn't broadly 
fit or completely make sense. I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's kind of like, yeah. oh, we, then we sort of are like saying how we're connected to this. Like, oh, yeah. then like at the end, they're going off to America. <laughs> Especially because from, okay, my, this film, I found Viola's ending actually kind of deeply hopeless in that she's now married to this like miserable dude who knows that she hates him and that, you know, and, and like, he knows that like, you know, she's like had this whole affair, et cetera. I feel like he's going to treat her like absolute shit. So until he dies, she, her life is going to be awful. And oh, that's but she was immortalized he dies in a play. And isn't that every woman's dream to have a man write about them? Yeah. Yeah. But so like her ending, I don't see as hopeful. I see as like really brutal and miserable Unless you kind of have this vague, like the new world is a new start. I think think it was more playing on the idea that sort of the new world is inherently sort of this like new start of like, oh, early America. Let's not think about what it was actually like or how terrible a lot of things were. But right. And I think that makes it then, I don't know. I think then maybe there is a way in which like it plays really differently watching it in 2022 where I'm like, and then you just have to end up in America. Like, fuck that. Like, (laughs) Yeah. So. And also like we don't I mean we don't even know that she does end up in America. We just see No. Her. Yeah. I mean she might be stranded on a beach. On a desert island you just somewhere. get on a ship and who She's knows just what's on some to beach somewhere. Yeah. 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 I mean it also like it's unclear right in the is the shipwreck a thing that really happens is it a thing that just happens in Shakespeare's oh. imagination. Yeah, I that was an imagination thing but also that's very unclear. But also I think there is something interesting in general about the way in which we know what happens to Shakespeare because he's the historical figure. But she's yeah. sort of not the historical figure. She's kind of like the more the creation of the author. And so she kind of is then only existing in relationship to Shakespeare in that she has vaguely a time in the past. But she also has very vaguely a time in the future and her sort of time in the future is sort of cast as sort of imaginary or not really mattering. But what matters is that Shakespeare put her in his play. Yeah. Yeah. And so she's kind of a character in both senses. Yeah. Yeah. And then her future is only imaginable through Mm -hmm. the plot of Shakespeare's uh, Twelfth Night, Mm -hmm. which is the next play that he's then working on. And so we actually don't know anything about what happens to her once Shakespeare stops being able to see her. Mm -hmm. Um, She disappears, essentially. Yeah, that all we have is like Shakespeare's imagining of him, of her, which is obviously, you know, wishful thinking in a lot of ways. There was also a slight her imagining herself, right? Since she is kind of yeah. like that, like collaborative authorship right at the end. But then yeah. also she's going away. So she'll only survive then. That's like the last sort of her that's being given after that. It's yeah. His imagining of her. Yeah. But she does create the plot of Twelfth Night. And uh, what we did learn, I think, from this film is that Shakespeare is very uncreative. <laughs> yes. Like every single like thing, it's like ev- like every name comes from somebody else, right? Like yeah, Christopher Marlowe gives drawing a from bunch real of names. Life. Isn't that yeah. like the bigger historical inaccuracy that like Shakespeare is drawing from real life as opposed to drawing from like history and drawing from like co- stories he'd read? I mean, Romeo and Juliet is based on an Italian story, so yeah, yeah, not based on his life. That that is an inaccuracy. Yes, yeah. I mean, I suppose you could say like, I, there's obviously like the like, I don't know. Can you write about love uh, meaningfully and like powerfully without having experienced that? Like, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I suppose you know one could say that there's a possibility that you his must have had romantic a life. Uh, not, I mean, not the doomed part necessarily, but that, like, I suppose there's a possibility one could say, right, like, that he could be drawing on feelings he had experienced, if not, like, events. Mm-hmm. But, 
Yeah, but that, yeah, the fact that, like, she writes half the play. Everybody else comes up with all of his plots and all of his character names. And it's like the idea that he'd just be walking around and, like, hearing lines of dialogue and then scribbling them down. Yeah. I thought that was a really cool aspect of this movie because that's sort of little, like, Easter eggs. Because um, I'm definitely not, like, a yeah. big, you know, knowledgeable Shakespeare person. But there, I definitely heard times where something was, like, a recognizable line from a Shakespeare play. And I thought yeah, that was yeah. really fun. But also... <laughs> it makes it seem like Shakespeare doesn't do any writing. Yes. Like this Shakespeare, I'm like, have you ever written anything? Really? But maybe Shakespeare isn't a person. Shakespeare is an experience of the world. <laughs> That's the new Shakespeare conspiracy theory. <laughs> Shakespeare is just a vibe on the streets of London. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's not coming from one man. It's just coming from everyone's like walking around and they're saying things and they get kind of distilled into a script at some point. Yeah. It's very structuralist. Yeah, Shakespeare is a construct. I'm bringing to this podcast <laughs> structuralism. Well, I think that I think that that's right, though, because I think that that's an extension of what you were saying about Viola being mm-hmm. completely dependent upon Shakespeare's understanding. Like we're seeing her through the lens of his work, um, and we're seeing his whole world through the lens of his work. Like it seems hard to imagine anyone saying anything in this version of Elizabethan England that isn't in some way adapted from an extant line of Shakespearean dialogue. And of course, there are things that are not mm-hmm. written by Shakespeare, but a lot of what we hear, a lot of what we see is just drawn from Shakespeare's plays. And then in order to tell a story about Shakespeare finding the ideas for his plays in this kind of recursive loop of understanding Elizabethan in London as the plays of William Shakespeare. Which gives this really interesting relationship between this movie and reality and that it also simultaneously kind of constructs it as like all fundamentally kind of interlinked with Shakespeare's imagination Mm -hmm. as opposed to a thing that's actually happening. Like do people actually speak in perfect Shakespearean dialogue or does Shakespeare just hear things in perfect Shakespearean dialogue? The world as he's going through life as a poet, as someone who's trying to create artistic work, does that sort of bend reality around him? Yeah. I think it's very, it's, this is all done. Like, I think this is all true. I think it's also done in a very self-aware way. In the same way, the thing like, you know, him having a mug that says, the place yeah. Is yeah it's also sort of like self-aware. I mean it knows yeah. what it's doing. yeah 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 and I also like also you know there's I mean there's just like a lot of ways and it's just, it's just like such a and it's there's such a like punchy film too I mean like yeah like Queen Elizabeth like Queen Elizabeth is like the comic relief in a lot of ways or, yeah. or a yeah. comic relief this was great I, I like a good you know sassy <laughs> yeah like she just comes up and like makes like snarky comments like yeah. Wessex is like I'll stake my fortune on it and she's like I thought you were here because you didn't have any we like a queen who's also an insult comic. Yeah. All the villains are comic relief in a way. That's true. Like, yeah. I'm not sure that there's anyone who's who's a villain who's not kind of there for the jokes, which is kind of weird. Yeah. No, that's true. Yeah. Especially with Fennyman, who kind of makes this transition from being a somewhat villainous figure, as we talked about, to being like... Oh, he's so happy to play the apothecary and have like two lives. I know. And, he and he's like, and like Shakespeare's end. like busy worrying about his relationship and he's like... I have the perfect hat for this. He's <laughs> like, I saw a man in an apothecary wearing a hat just like this someday. Shakespeare's like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's fine. Like, yeah. I mean, also in general, I mean, this is actually like, it's a very funny movie. Like for a movie yeah. that is about a tragic doomed love story, it is a very funny movie because like uh, Jeffrey Rush's Henslow as well, right? I mean, there's a whole bit where he he still thinks it's a comedy, bless his heart. 
and he's trying to, and he's like, great, we need a bit with a dog. And he's got this very charming dog who looks like a very, very good boy or girl. And who just looks like so eager and like, yeah, just whatever you need me to do, I am a very good dog. And he's like, wait, there's not going to be a dog. A true tragedy in the play. I I know, I know. That, that dog is the best actor on yeah, that stage. He's doing a very good job. Yeah, even better. That dog's even better than Ben Affleck in his one good role. Well, I think all of the characters are seeing the play through their roles. And so they think yeah. that centers on their role, which is kind of a recurring joke. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like Netflix, when they're in the like, tavern and the guy who like, plays oh. the nurse gets asked by a girl, like, what is your play about? And he's like, well, yeah. it's about this nurse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's funny because you see that being kind of done very deliberately with um, with Ned that he's that, you know, that he's like telling him he's like trying to kind of play up like what a great character Mercutio is. And then he's like, and what's the play called? And he kind of goes, Mercutio. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at the screenplay and I think that they actually, I, I don't remember, I don't think they actually filmed this, but maybe I'm misremembering, but there, there's actually an earlier moment where like Burbage is asking about it and he wants Burbage to play Romeo and mm-hmm. Burbage is like, what's it called? And he's like, Romeo. And so mm-hmm. it definitely feels like a really important thematic thing here, which is like your entry point into the piece of literature, like the thing you are representing is the thing around which you perceive it as completely orbiting. You are the center of the play's universe, which in a way explains what it's doing with Shakespeare slash Romeo sort of see everything as orbiting around him. And Marlowe's death, I thought, was a really interesting kind of incursion into that because so he uh, had decided just, you know, because he's kind of a dick to give Marlowe's name to Wessex when Wessex is like, who are you and why are you hitting on my fiance? Mm -hmm. And then Marlowe dies. You know, as we all know, historically, Marlowe is, you know, killed in the context of this tavern brawl with many, many conspiracy theories about what happened with that. But that, you know, we, we, you know, he does in fact die in 1593. And uh, Shakespeare, of course, immediately, you know, assumes it was Wessex and blames himself. And we have this scene of him like really aggressively praying. And on the one hand, it is very much a scene where it feels like Shakespeare is making Marlowe's death about him. But also at the same time, it's sort of interesting. Then have like a mistaken, did someone die since that's going to happen in Juliet. So we had to have, have that happen in real life. Exactly. So that has to happen in real life. And also it is a kind of interesting well, moment where Marlo is Mercutio. Yes. Uh, I think. So he actually yes. as having someone actually die who was in yeah. the But sorry, I interrupted. But I was just going to say that it is also this interesting moment of like realizing like, oh, like and actions actually have consequences. And it's not just like a thing on stage that I make up and I can control that, you know, he he kind of set this thing that, you know, in terms of his perception, it turns out then that Wessex didn't actually have him killed. He just like was like awesome when he heard that he died. But that it kind of gives him this moment of kind of thinking like, oh, like it's not I don't actually control all of this. I think it's like it's made it like playing a role has stakes since he is sort of like Mm -hmm. playing a role when he says he's Marlowe. And also that that kind of relates to when he's maybe going to be in a sword fight with someone and Viola's like, oh, but you only know stage fighting. Right. And like they have a fight at some point. Like there is a duel between Wessex and Shakespeare. Real fighting. (laughs) Well, because Wessex has an actual sword and Shakespeare has a prop sword. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that the film goes out of its way after that to make it clear that Shakespeare didn't cause Marlowe's death, mm-hmm. where it might have just allowed 
us to know that Shakespeare caused Marlowe's death, but instead there's yeah. a scene where they're like, no, he yeah. just got in a fight. It had nothing to do with you. And I wonder whether that's walking away a little bit from potential tragic implications. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, the, yeah. the film probably wants to remain a fun comedy for the most part, despite the fact that, you know, it doesn't end with the two people being together. It's still a very comedic play. And maybe maybe they thought that would be a little bit too heavy. The idea that this kind of like playing characters and kind of like mistaken identity thing did result in someone who it seems like he really cared about dying. And that's one of the things in a way that I find weirdest about this film is that I find the tone very odd, that it very much wants to be light and fun and charming. And at the same time, I'm like, there are really horrible things happening. I mean, certainly, you know, Marlowe is dead, regardless of what actually led to it, right? So we kind of have this person who's, you know, lost his life. And that's obviously a kind of tragic experience, even if it's not your fault. We also then have, as I said, I I think, you know, Viola, we have to kind of imagine her being in this, like, horrifically brutal abusive marriage like you know like that is I think the most likely scenario assuming he doesn't die in a shipwreck and so there is a real kind of darkness in the background of this play that I think then kind of comes out in the fact that you know even that you know Shakespeare writes this as I'm going to write this play about these two teenagers who kill themselves but that's that it's it, always kind of mimic Romeo and Juliet a little bit yeah yeah Juliet's like it's no that's true but it's funny yeah no that's true yeah in the in in uh the in the video that they made with the Department of Education Mm -hmm. the I think the director of the the movie is talking wrongly I think about like how special Shakespeare was in combining combining comedy and tragedy and how that was a new thing in fact if you read Dr. Faustus or any of Marlowe's plays Mm -hmm. Marlowe was already doing like that was a yeah that was a thing that people were doing, but that Shakespeare didn't admit is... that either. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and and but clearly there isn't that there is that intention in this film of combining tragedy and mm-hmm. and comedy of of writing maybe tragic comedy. We could say to like call it what the Elizabethans would have called it. That's a deliberate tonal or series of tonal shifts that they're going into. I think. Yeah, but then they should have left in the tragedy of. Marlo's well, that's what I yeah, because I feel like yeah, they do sort of I don't know, kind of like let up on the brakes a little bit with that because yeah, that's it really hit. And and with the end, I think too, like I I think I think they should have leaned into the fact that her end is tragic, mm-hmm. and I don't think they do. Would have made it seem like they sort of cared about her as a character in a way that I'm yes. Sure. I don't know. Ooh, the studio yeah. actually made them reshoot. That. So I read this online. I really? think this may or may not be true. The studio made them reshoot, apparently, the final scene in which Viola says goodbye to Shakespeare to make her seem less tearful and more kind of hopeful. Oh. And so this may have, at least according to some of the articles I was reading online, this may have deliberately been the studio being like, this is too much of a downer. Oh, we need uh-huh. to end this. Yeah, more. like they didn't want to really revel in the in the tragic comedy. They were like, we need to sort of just push it into a more clear genre of this is just fun so i'm trying to remember how films work when we say studio i mean is that weinstein yeah i guess that would be miramax in this case i mean so that's like a whole other thing we can blame on weinstein i mean but it's a layer right of oh we have a we have a woman who's being forced into a marriage with this like older man she doesn't want to be with uh why don't yeah seem really chill and happy about that like relationship that she is being non-consensually for uh, like put into 
Well, we have the, I guess, director of a play sleeping with one of his actresses and her being really upset by the fallout of that relationship as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you know, I mean, there, like, there are a lot of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of layers. Mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of interesting layers. So our our kind of big showpiece, you know, end moment. We have uh, this this very unpleasant boy whose name is John Webster, which I'm going to come back to in the uh, next segment. And he has been like hanging around the theater and uh, goes and tattles to uh, Tilney, who is the uh, the master of revels and therefore also the person in charge of like making sure everything in the theater is above board. And tells him, you know, there's a woman in this production. There's a lot of them, you know, in terms of our kind of gender discussion, some real, like a lot of like comedy around like different men playing women who first he's like Juliet and like lifts up her skirt. And then we are presumed to notice that there is a visible penis and therefore it is not in fact, a man that is not in fact a woman. And that, you know, something similar happens later, you know, with the, the man, the man playing nurse but that we have this weird like moment of like there's a failure to recognize that it's in fact the the man the, the woman who is playing a man who is actually a woman but that she then gets gets outed theater is closed Burbage is kind enough to offer his theater in place so that we've had kind of this like rivalry throughout that then they all kind of come together and unite as the theater against the censors and are all going to be friends and the play must go on with Shakespeare, it looks like, playing Romeo. And then Juliet's voice drops. So they no longer have a Juliet. And Henslow is out. One person who could possibly. Yes, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. And Henslow is in the audience and, uh, you know, talking to some, I mean, I think maybe talking to Burbage and saying, yeah. like, I don't know what we're going to do. And then Viola, who was like snuck off after her wedding and is attending the play, says, but like, what happened to Sam? And she's and he's like, who are you? And he's like, oh, and she's like, I'm Thomas Penn. And he's like, oh, do you know the role of Juliet? And of course, she and of says, course she does. She practically Word. wrote those lines. So and she's like, I fucking wrote this fucking play. <laughs> and then, of course, they have this sort of like culmination of their romantic relationship as them on stage, like performing the role, the two roles that they've crafted together, but also they're the sort of double tragic ending of, of course, the play ends tragically, but also it's the end of their relationship because though they don't end up getting thrown in jail since the queen kind of intervenes and is like, I know something about a woman playing a man's role or something. Um, and is like, don't arrest these people. It'll be fine. Um, she still has to then go off and marry the Wessex Lord of Wessex guy and go to Virginia. So it's sort of the double tragic ending. Yes. But he does win 50 pounds because they've proved that you can represent true love on stage as long as you have a man and a woman like it's supposed to be. Yeah. And if that love is actually death. True. If you you really fall in love with someone, you will both die. That's what I learned. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that's a good argument to remain single. (laughs) No one should ever fall in love. You will die. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to contrast this to the ending of like Twelfth Night or something where you mm-hmm. also have like a, a a woman dressed as a man for a large part of the play where that ends with like this reveal of like, I'm actually a woman, therefore everything can be set right. You know, the various heterosexual marriages can go forward. You know, gender has not 
you know, been as troubled as, as you think. And so there's this sort of like in Twelfth Night, at the end of Twelfth Night, there's this kind of like reveal to everyone of what had been concealed. But this mm-hmm. play doesn't end that way. This play ends with with the, the queen being like, nope, that's a man. You know, I've inspected him. He's a man. He's going to go out and Viola de Lesseps is going to come out, come out and mm-hmm. go off with her, with her husband. And so it, it's kind of, it's interesting that, that this thing is not revealed to mm-hmm. everyone. Um, yeah. But also it's interesting in that maybe it's not, it's not revealed, but also it's sort of not revealed in a way that everyone all kind of knows, like everyone who's yeah. standing around there or a majority of people standing around there are like, okay, I guess this is what we're doing here. But they know that she's actually... Which is very theatrical, right? That everybody knows that this is a fiction. Every everybody knows and you know, knows that all of these women are in fact men mm-hmm. when you're watching the play, and yet you let yourself get caught up in it and you let yourself, you know, you have that suspension of disbelief. And so that same suspension of disbelief that happens on stage uh happens in that this happens kind in of real life where everyone's like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Thomas Kent, go back and find Viola. It does make me think, you know, no one can stop Thomas Kent from just staying in London and being an actor. That's and being true. A the queen has a yeah. throne. The Thomas queen has declared Yeah, the queen yeah. has a of everyone. You're going to doubt that you're going to doubt Thomas Kent after that? He so could like, go back based on this. He could have gone backstage, come back out and said, I can't find Viola. That I don't know what's hilarious. up. <laughs> he just goes back out and he's like, I think she's ran. I have no idea. Just like dead can, like, no okay. clue. Yes, or like, you lost or like, you know, she stabbed herself for real. <laughs> Dude, like, Viola was like, dead. dead. That was really her blood. Herself. Yeah, Viola Vi- is dead. Long live Thomas Kent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's been granted permission, or he's been granted permission mm-hmm. to do that. Essentially, I mean, mm-hmm. I do think he is choosing to go and turn back into Viola de Lesseps and be like, I'm going to live my life mm-hmm. as a woman. But I don't think that that was necessary. I think that you could see alternate paths as much as everyone is insisting, no, this has to be the, mm-hmm. you know, marriage is so important. You have to do this. You have to do that. It's it's interesting how it sort of allows for you to see alternate paths while sort of foreclosing them. Anyway. And that's where I wish they'd actually interrogated issues of class, because I think that's the yeah, answer to that's some the extent. the main thing that's changing here, that she would give Ooh, up her yeah. position in society and she would give up sort of a lot of like comfort and wealth. Yeah. And like and a relationship I think with her family. Yeah. And I think she's not willing to do that ultimately, yeah, but she, but it's not she really could. That way. It's framed as sort of like, oh, well, I guess you can't, but. But that's just very much kind of taking these class relations as natural, right? This, like, this is how it has to be, but it doesn't. Yeah. Or maybe it's or just Thomas it's assuming that yeah. if Thomas Kent is a man, then he and Shakespeare can't be together anyway. And oh. so that's impossible. That's pro- that's actually probably uh-huh. what it's assuming. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because if she did just sort of continue as Thomas Kent, then like they would have been together as Thomas Kent and William Shakespeare. Right, so the the compulsory heterosexuality. But on the other hand, we already know from this play that if two men make out, just nobody will ever be like, (laughs) yeah, everyone's like, yeah, normal. Yeah, yeah, everyone's just like, you know, that seems like a regular relationship between like a male lead actor and the like director slash writer. That's just how it goes. Sexual harassment on set. (laughs) No, everybody's like, it's two men that can't have anything to do with sex. Move along. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, well, they, they could have been great roommates. That, like the, I, I know you probably, we probably want to, to move on, Sarah, sorry, but I just have one, one, right. 
interesting. The the reaction to that kiss between Shakespeare and his Romeo, like the reaction to that is Ned Allen being like, oh, you're giving us a line reading, essentially. Like, okay, fine. Yeah. Whatever. Like it's acting. It's obviously acting. It's not yeah. real because this wouldn't be real. And so, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That he's like, all right, come on. Like, I, this is my job, sir. Like, the, like I'm directing, you're just the writer. Like, <laughs> yeah. If anyone's going to make out with him, it's going to be me. Cause that's my job. Naturally. <laughs> So this way, we already kind of touched on some things, but I want to get into the uh, the Vera at Falso, where we talk about what they got right or wrong. I'll note that there's a uh, review from uh, Janet Maslin for the New York Times, which entertainingly described this film as not constrained by worries about literary or historical accuracy. Uh, so as I said, we've already kind of touched on some things, but is there anything that especially kind of jumped out to either of you as something that you thought this film kind of did, did well or not in terms of uh, its relationship to the past? Well, I mean, I already said this, but I thought the anachronisms were really cute and funny. Yeah. Like, there's also that time when he jumps into a boat and he's like, follow that boat. Very much like someone would yeah. say, like, follow that taxi. Yeah. 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 And so I think there are a lot of cute little things that are very intentionally like let's put a very modern relationship or a very modern kind of set of social interactions into the past for comedic effect. Yeah. I agree. I think that when it's not being literarily or historically accurate, it knows it and it's doing it Mm -hmm. for effect. I would say the one thing, again, I've already talked about this, but the one thing I do think where it maybe is doesn't know it's not being historically accurate mm-hmm. is that it's not acknowledging the ways in which like gender and sexuality might have been yeah in the elizabethan period and it thinks that this is a world where straightness is the norm which i i don't you know i don't think i mean there were only straight true. people before mm-hmm. like 1990 yeah. so they invented gay people in like 1950 <laughs> i think maybe yeah, that sounds that sounds right as a story. Well, yeah. Apparently, in 1998, people are not really <laughs> yeah, willing to based on this play. Actually, yeah, well, it's that's true. Like 2001, or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Other than that, I think it's I think it's fun, and I think it's pretty knowledgeable. Um, so. Yeah, and I think a lot of the like theater rivalry stuff is uh, is very well done. Um, I am going to do my my one. I really like it, like looking up just like very weird things that are offhandedly show up in films. So in this particular case, uh, we have a scene where Viola, while musing about her future, uh, is brushing her teeth with a twig. So I decided I would like to look up uh, oral hygiene in Elizabethan England. And so if you are interested in learning more about this, uh, I'm quoting I mean, from an we article. All be emulating Elizabethan England in our oral hygiene, I assume. As we'll see, perhaps. <laughs> so uh, Carl Dannenfeld has an article called Oral Hygiene in Elizabethan England. And I'd like to share some of the recommendations for uh, how to go about cleaning your teeth properly. Oh, please do. I'm excited. From Christoph Wursung, who is a German physician, but whose work was commonly read in England. So he recommends take cuttlebone white sea mussels, spuma maris, which is apparently some kind of sea sponge, alum aristolochia, parched barley, native sulfur, cinnamon, and long pepper in any amounts, temper with honey, and rub your teeth often with it. Also take two drams of tartar, crush it fine, sear it, wash it in good wine, and rub the teeth once a day. You should then wash your mouth out with warm wine in the winter and cold wine in the summer. So we've got a couple of suggestions there. Do you have to spit uh, out the wine or can you drink the wine? <laughs> I think you spit out I the wine. The important questions here. Oh, darn. 
I think he spit out the wine. Uh, there's also, there's a lot of oysters. You can also take half an ounce of burnt oyster shells and sandarac, which is a tree resin, plus two drams of iris roots, one half dram of aristolochia, or one half dram each, excuse me, of aristolochia, gentian, and sensuary. And it uses a dentifrice, which I think is kind of like a tooth mask, if I'm remembering or correctly. from. Yeah, I mean, that's French for toothpaste, isn't it? Okay, so it's just like toothpaste. And also a good suggestion for whitening, which we should all learn from, that you should take Venetian glass and grind it very fine on a piece of marble, powder white pebbles, and then to these powders, add a quantity of the roots of white iris and rub the teeth with these mixtures. Hmm. So really, they could have had a lot more fun with her brushing her teeth in this film is the uh, the main takeaway yeah, from that. that is what I'm getting from this. Yeah. And also just like, there's a lot of like fun stuff involved. Some people suggest like pumice stone can be used for things. There's some coral in some of these. Like there's a lot of fascinating ingredients that go into Elizabethan teeth cleaning that I, I wish we'd gotten to see more of. Mm-hmm. And all we got was just a little a little toothpicky thing <laughs> yeah just a little toothpick and and the toothpick was something that somebody might have had but that's just really like the tip of the iceberg when it uh-huh. comes to cleaning as i as i hope i have uh noted here that there's there's so much more of an extensive well, we can all we can all try to implement some of these things tonight <laughs> yes so it's some Without suggestions <laughs> Oh, and the uh, the one other thing that I want to note is that, so we, I think we've already kind of touched on the fact a lot of these characters are real people, obviously Shakespeare and Marlowe, but also Henslow and Burbage, Nedeline. child. Yes, the small child is given the name John Webster, suggesting that he grows up to be the playwright John Webster, who would indeed have been about 13 at this time, and is known for the play as the White Devil and the Duchess of Malfi. And I have not read either of them, but I did look up the summaries on Wikipedia, and they do seem like they have their fair share of onstage slaughter, if maybe not quite as much as the young Webster would have wanted. And honestly, it seemed like less than Titus Andronicus. So. True. You know, he matured, apparently. Yeah, he, he didn't stay 13 forever, but yeah, there's that something was very cute, though, point. having this, like, small child running around being like, I want more blood and gore in the theater. And, like, he has, but like, also this, like, horrible child. Like, he, just, <laughs> like, he, like, plays with rats and wants everybody to die and is, like, a snitch. Like, fuck that kid. Hey, I'm sorry. Where This kid probably is very low on, you know, cash funds. He's probably getting, like, paid for snitching on people. I just... I will defend the tiny John Webster. <laughs> I'm not defending tiny John Webster. Tiny John Webster fucking sucks. Gosh. I mean, he seems to take a relish have. in it. That, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And also like when they're not getting right away, which one is actually a woman, he like throws a like rat down her shirt. I'm sorry. This is a very that. clever, resourceful young man. And it's not his fault that he can't find a way to support himself besides being a snitch. Well, also, this is unrelated, but this is uh, because I'm too disturbed by this. Um, But, like, Shakespeare's written Titus Andronicus, is that based on his life? Or was that the one play that he invented? Uh, yeah, well, it was that. Uh, I mean, it's that like the story things... someone told him once. Yeah, exactly. Every now and then he'll read something else, and that, and he'll like be like, okay, like I can make that a play. So it's like you know that, and like Henry the Fourth are like things oh, that right. he actually wrote yeah presumably his like very historical plays aren't just things that happened to him i would imagine 
Maybe Marlo tells him the plots for. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Maybe that was one where he was like sitting in the bar with Marlo. Marlo was like, let me tell you this funny story. Yeah, maybe this kid, maybe this kid is like, let me tell you about all this shit that I heard about Richard the third. So John Webster actually wrote Richard the (laughs) third. I think it's really, yeah, I mean, that's really funny. Uh, They should have put a scene where he just sort of suggests the plot to like all of Shakespeare's other plays. Um, No, but I think it's (laughs) hilarious that this kid is just John Webster in that Mm -hmm. he's just this like horrible child behind the scenes, like (laughs) manipulating everything into being a lot worse and more gross and more tragic than it would have been otherwise. So he's kind of writing the play Mm -hmm. too, in Mm -hmm. some ways. because Yeah, so more like shared authorship. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Claire, do you have opinions about John Webster? Uh, not really. Okay. I, I, I don't really do like Jacobean drama. I mean, I don't even okay. really like drama, but like, I kind of do. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's fine. Okay. Yeah. I, I I've never actually you know, had read or seen either the of them. The people so. I do really love who do not feature in this because I guess they write a little bit later are Beaumont and Fletcher, great writers of tragic comedies. Um, I would love, I would love to watch a movie called Beaumont and Fletcher in love where they're in love with each other. Obviously they were oh. collaborators and partners, oh. but anyway, maybe yeah. great collaborative writing can... and love stories then. Yeah. Yes. So in the Historia at Veritas, I usually talk about a real person, event, or phenomenon. And I guess I've never actually talked about Shakespeare on this podcast. I I guess he's technically somewhat outside the ambit. Not that this would be the first thing that has done that. But (laughs) I mean, I think we can call basically anything before like 1750 medieval. Uh, that's basically the point of this podcast is that I essentially <laughs> like, claim no. <laughs> I basically claim anything from about 300 to 1750. It's fair game. In fact, I've actually I've done things that Everything are actually like actually first medieval. century. I've done things that are like first century CE, actually. So basically, yeah, I'm just claiming everything somehow. from like yeah, everything from like Jesus to 1750. I'm kind of claiming. Cool. So I'm a medievalist. Thanks. Yes, you yeah, are a medievalist. That's a good Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. congratulations yeah. on this honor. I'm very proud. <laughs> oh, so we do have, uh, you know, a number of ways in which the film touches on real things involving the life of Shakespeare. So he was, we have his baptismal precise date, uh, which was, I didn't actually write down the date at some time in April in 1564 in Stratford-upon-Avon. April we 26. know that he, April 26th. Yeah. Uh, and Marla was baptized on February 26th, which I was very excited about because that's my birthday. So... And Marlowe's cooler than Shakespeare. So that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Say more about that later. We know that he married Anne Hathaway when he was 18 and she was, I believe, 26. And that they had uh, three children. They had a daughter, Susanna, and then they had twins, Hamnet and Judith, uh, the former of which Hamnet, uh, Hamnet did not make it. Hamnet died. Oh, so I can't make any jokes about his having a very funny name then. I mean, you can, and like, I mean, there's a, there's a well, novel, which I have not, now. <laughs> because he died when he was like 11. Is that distasteful? But there's he a novel. I what his name was. Everyone started making fun of him. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a novel that is called Hamnet, which is, I believe, about, I assume it's about Hamnet. My I mom's read it. read it. She's told me to read it, huh. but I haven't actually read it yet. Sorry, mom. Maybe by the time, maybe I'll read it by the time this episode actually comes out. <laughs> And Shakespeare, however, took the book off and abandoned his wife and young children. 
So by uh, 1592 at the latest, he was kind of definitely based in London. We seem to be sort of a little like unclear as to exactly what his deal was between about 1585 and 1592. But by 1592, he's definitely in London on the theater scene, probably was somewhat earlier than that. We know that Romeo and Juliet was written at some time between 1591 and 1595, which does kind of fall into what we see in this film. We also know that around this time, his skill and reputation started to actually translate into financial success. And he uh, he bought property in Stratford and actually did have a house in Stratford. And when he died, he left his wife his second best bed, which apparently the scholarship differs on whether that is meaningful or insulting. Interesting. My only Wait, also, about I'm this. Just, I was just, I was just going to express my confusion. Is do you mean that he left her a physical bed? Yes, that was actually quite. Real, that's yeah, that was really common in medieval wills. Like beds are expensive. Yeah, but like to specify his second bed, I'm what a weird. Well, the idea is that she might have automatically gotten his first best, and that he might have wanted to specify that one as well, or maybe it had a sentimental connection. But like, who knows? I don't know. Or it was a dick move. Yeah, I also yeah, think it is plausible. I mean, he did abandon her and his children. <laughs> I I feel like yeah. I can't quite buy into like seeing Shakespeare as a particularly good husband, given that he just like took the fuck off and went to London and like ditched her with like young children, mm-hmm. and especially because like ideal. Yeah, and no, she didn't even get the best bet at the end of everything. Right? Well, my only feeling about this Rude. is that they missed uh, an opportunity to joke about this in the film where like when he's talking to his psychoanalyst and he's like the marriage bed has been a really cold one. I thought that they were going to follow up with that by like and so I'm going to like leave it to her to get back at her or something in my book. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that would have been a good joke. Potential in that but moment. Instead they, they went, yeah. Know, especially since the twins were born, which was just a complete missed opportunity for I know. the bed. Disappointing. Really disappointing. Yeah. Also, I will note in terms of that, the, the play is kind of approximately right about the date when Romeo and Juliet was missing, was written, but then it's like, oh, and the next play he wrote was Twelfth Night, but apparently Twelfth Night, everyone thinks was written like 1601. So like eight years like after that's this. Like necessary for plot reasons, though. Yeah, I mean, and, and I didn't actually look up like what would have been like if there's a play that would have been a kind of better. Oh, that could have. But been. I guess like yeah, but I guess like I don't know. I guess Twelfth Night is the only one where you have a, a woman dressed as a man for an ex. Well, no, I mean well, that, no. You, no, Merchant of Venice, but that would have added a whole can of worms <laughs> if that was a play, which. Maybe they shouldn't have tackled. Is there clear? Are there more? As you like it, maybe. As you like, I mean, as you like it could work because you like go off into a different place, but then you return. And so maybe. Oh, so maybe that would put a weird spin on it. Whereas with Twelfth Night, like she goes, she's washed up on the shore and then she stays because she marries, Mm -hmm. you know. So maybe it has to be a play about going off and not coming back. Yeah. So yeah, so it's sort of thematically the most useful play, but in in plot context, it's like it either doesn't make sense or it's like Queen Elizabeth is like, write this play for Twelfth Night. And he's like, I will, but I'm going to write it for Twelfth Night eight years from now. Well, it just Mm. took him a while to work through his feelings. I mean, that actually does track with what we see of Shakespeare in this play, (laughs) that he might have taken eight years to write Twelfth Night. He just had to wait for like somebody else to come along to write his play for him and give him yeah. the rest of the plot because Viola gave him like half dead. the plot. I know, right? Viola, he's got to wait for um, uh, what's his name for John Webster to grow up to give him the rest of the plot of Twelfth Night. I also guess I mean, 
I, I so I, I genuinely have no I'm not a theater historian and so I'm sure people know this but I mean I think Romeo and Juliet was first printed in 1597 is that true and so it's actually not that far in terms of printing from when Twelfth Night was right I wonder whether there's a little bit of a conflation there but also like I'm sure they don't care like it doesn't matter they're just like, no I think the answer yeah, is that yeah, they don't care yeah a lot of Twelfth yeah. Night would make sense here so yeah because I will say they do it actually does say 1593 at the beginning so we do have a precise yeah. date in which the film is meant to take place and it also because like it, it, be Marlowe has to die. Exactly. It. Yeah. Like so. it coincides correctly with Marlowe's death. It's perfectly fine from the perspective of like when we think Romeo and Juliet was probably written. So it, you know, it works for some things and doesn't work quite as well for others. Yeah. I don't think it's a huge, I don't think this is a huge problem. No, <laughs> it's yeah. fine. You're not going to write them a strongly worded letter, Cleo. <laughs> I mean, I would probably write to them about other things before I wrote to them. Yeah. About you write about, yeah. Also, also this play, this play, movie that came out 24 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's been 24 years, but I <laughs> So also, I wanted to talk, especially because you have a fan fiction podcast, I wanted to talk about Shakespeare and canon and the relationship of essentially kind of why why Shakespeare is such a is so kind of associated with canon and then also the kind of relationship between this film and canon or this film as fan fiction. Okay, well so the idea of Shakespeare is canon, I feel like Cleo should take that one. Well, no, you should take this because you're <laughs> you're the one who knows about should fan fiction. Right? The bonus on. Okay, okay. No, but <laughs> Okay, but so so the idea that this is kind of fan fiction when that was first floated, I was like, oh, yes, of course, this is fan fiction. But then I was like, actually, it's technically not or it's or it's it's kind of more similar to real person fiction, which is often definitionally divided from fan fiction. And mm-hmm. then fan fiction is about fictional characters. Real person fiction is about people who actually existed. However, then I went back on that and I was like, no, maybe Shakespeare is kind of a fictional person in that we have an idea of who Shakespeare was. Mm-hmm. But that's different than real person fiction traditionally today in that most real person fiction isn't written about like celebrities or actors or musicians or people who are alive. And maybe that's a bit of a different project than writing about someone who we all have a kind of idea about who he is, but it is this kind of like fictionalized concept because of how much space there is, but maybe these are all fluid categories. So is this fan Mm -hmm. fiction? Is it not? Um, I think it definitely has these attributes of fan fiction in that fiction is sort of traditionally written as we're going to take well-known characters and we're going to sort of put them in a different situation or sort of imagine different things happening to them. And that's very much how I would sort of describe this. We're taking the character of William Shakespeare Mm -hmm. and imagining what if these things happen to Shakespeare? What if the driving force of Shakespeare writing Romeo and Juliet was his relationship with this woman, Viola? And also I think the slippage between Shakespeare and Viola on the one hand and Romeo and Juliet on the other also kind of adds this to adds this into kind of the realm of fiction as well. It also one thing it really reminded me of is um, there's some fan fiction that's written about um, actors and it's specifically written about um, sort of you'll have like actors who are playing love interests on a TV show that like actually exists in real life. Um, And then you'll be writing about like, oh, well, what was their relationship like behind the scenes and kind of asking Mm. the question of was that actually feeding into the chemistry that we saw on the screen? Mm -hmm. But it's not fan fiction about the characters. It's fan fiction about the actors. And I think that's the sort of trope in fan fiction right now that this I thought most closely resembled because of the sort of idea of playing mm-hmm. with the slippage between a fictional story and the reality of a relationship. Yeah. Cleo, why do you think Shakespeare is so closely tied with canon? 
So I think we know a fair amount about Shakespeare uh, compared to other people of the time, but uh, for a highly canonical author, right? Someone who a lot of people are forced to study at university at some point and, uh, you know, in high school. Forced to uh, study by people like Cleo. Exactly. Whom I'm forcing the entirety. Uh, yeah. That's what Actually, I thought I mean, your job was. Well, I am teaching on the required like first year introduction to Shakespeare course right now. So I'm thinking a lot about like the canonicity of Shakespeare and like helping yeah. towards that canonicity. But I mean, we have we have some information, but not everything about him. So we know a lot about his business dealings. Uh, we know about the money side of things, but you know, whom with whom did he love, right? Why did he get married so young to this woman? And mm-hmm. then her, uh, was he romantically involved with the young man and with the the dark lady, um, as they're often called, to whom the, the sonnets are addressed? You know, what were his feelings? What was his life like? How did he come to write all of the many plays that he wrote? I think that there is a lot of unknown there. And so I think, and I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of scholars and a lot of people outside of academia want to speculate about his life because there is this thought of like speculating about his life is going to explain something to us about the work right if we can figure out you know who who was the the lady to whom some of the sonnets were addressed and people have all of these different theories right people mm-hmm. think that they know the answer to that and maybe really do know the answer i you know i'm not primarily shakespearean but anyway um so so i think that there is that desire to go out and fill in the the blanks and that is just mm-hmm. perpetuated by the fact that he's so intensely canonical, right? That we are just, we're forcing mm-hmm. everyone to read Shakespeare, Shakespeare, Shakespeare all the time. Um, and so we're, yeah, I, I think that he's such an important author and there are so many unknowns in short. Which also makes him this kind of really interesting subject for the these kind of fan fictions about, yeah, you know, also Shakespeare's like, life. works best when people have a lot of strong feelings about the canon. Mm-hmm. Or or like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think fan fiction works best when you have a lot of strong feelings about the source material. Um, mm-hmm. So therefore, I think it's a lot easier to write something like this where you're imagining Shakespeare's life than it would be imagining the life of another author because people aren't automatically bringing to it all mm-hmm. these sort of thoughts and feelings if it's about a less better known author where it's here we all have thoughts about Shakespeare we all sort of probably recognize the little scraps of quotes from different mm-hmm. Shakespeare plays that kind of play in the background of this movie um, and so because of that it's in the same way that people enjoy fan fiction because they have strong feelings about the canon they might enjoy this when they have like thoughts mm-hmm. about Shakespeare yeah so any other thoughts about Shakespeare before we move along <laughs> um, I mean I think uh <laughs> I, you know, there is like a very strong conspiracy theory or set of conspiracy theories around whether, you know, Shakespeare wrote his plays. And I'm almost just grateful that this is a depiction of Shakespeare in which he actually wrote the plays <laughs> that he said that he wrote. I mean, sort of. He sort of wrote them. But do you think that I was mean, purposefully true, playing yeah. with that idea? <laughs> like, do you think that the reason why there's this so like this aspect of shared authorship in the movie was that supposed to be like a joking like nod to this well you know it's an interesting thing because shakespeare actually did or a lot shakespeare did co-write a lot of his works Mm -hmm. he co-wrote several works with fletcher of beaumont and fletcher fame or lack thereof about 11 percent some a scholar uh Gary Stewart, I think, has suggested that about 11% of Macbeth was written by Thomas Middleton after the fact. And so there is a lot of other people's 
work in the Shakespearean canon. And so I don't think it's completely untrue to, to show a Shakespeare who is co-authoring plays in some way, mm-hmm. obviously not in this way, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. but th- I don't think that's a completely untrue depiction of how Shakespeare might've worked. Yeah. And yeah, I always find the conspiracy theories interesting in that like they, there's all like, there's like, there's also so many of them that seem to kind of want to like find these, like, I don't know, sort of intriguing, like alternative identities for Shakespeare, including like a, a lot of them were like, they're like Shakespeare is a woman. And I'm like, have you read Shakespeare? Because I don't, because that was written. Those women are written by men. They're all written by men. Yes, I agree. I mean, I, for the record, I think all of the conspiracy theories are false and classist because a lot of them are assuming you would need to be either very Mm -hmm. powerful and important and or university educated Uh so either be queen elizabeth Mm -hmm. which is why you're writing plays of shakespeare under a pseudonym or like some kind of aristocrat and so um i think it's Mm -hmm. i I always get really annoyed by i think that there are a lot of like dramatizations of shakespeare not writing his plays that for some reason i guess in some ways this movie is doing the exact opposite thing because shakespeare is the main character so it's very Mm -hmm. much not only is shakespeare writing plays but it's like a movie about shakespeare it's shakespeare and love yeah Yeah. can't be in doubt the fact that he was the writer (laughs) yeah right yes he's very much centered even though as i said he's never come up he's never named a character in his life as far as we can tell I, it was something so funny though in the world of this movie to have known all these people personally and then be seeing the plays and being like oh this is about that where i recognize yes that. yeah That's exactly like I, yeah i, I want to be in the peanut gallery of this play i know right unfold. yeah at this point we can do the fabula nostra where we come up with a film or piece of media inspired by this one and i will i will go first and maybe maybe i'll go and then Marie and then cleo to uh kind of so clear you can see the kind of things one usually does well, on no, the podcast cleo does this for our podcast that's oh that's so, that is true actually so you should this, be that's true actually so you should be well prepared so my idea is really just that why the fuck is there so much about Shakespeare when Christopher Marlowe exists? Because Christopher Marlowe is clearly a more interesting person. And I would much rather see a play about Christopher Marlowe. Because, you know, Marlowe, like, he's probably gay. He's possibly a spy. He was reputed to be an atheist. Like, this guy seems awesome. And so I want, like, the, like, the, like, you know, dramatic movie about his, you know, these, like, things in tension. Like, you know, his you know, him maybe like Marlowe in love, but it's like him trying to like juggle his relationship with his boyfriend and his espionage activities. I mean, that is a tagline alone, I'm sure would intrigue a lot of people. How is he exactly. his boyfriend with his espionage activities? Exactly. I think that would be an excellent movie. So yeah, I want him like doing that while like trying to finish the massacre of Paris. And, uh, and Owen, I think in my version, he's going to fake his own death too. Uh, that does sound so intriguing. I'm, so I, so like, I am going it, to go with a And you still get theory. what I thought was the coolest aspect of this movie, which is like the sort of, you know, the relationship between the fictional story you're writing mm-hmm. and what's happening to you, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that would be fun. And also, like, I don't know, I didn't really think about casting that much, but also I sort of feel like this is what Timothée Chalamet is sort of for these days. So uh, probably you he should play Marlowe. in your fan mail to, to <laughs> This is what you're for, what right? You're for, specifically with that phrasing. <laughs> I've come up with a movie. I'm not like pitching it to anyone. I'm not a screenwriter, but I have come up with an idea for a movie and this is what you are for. I think yeah. you are the only person who could juggle your boyfriend and your espionage duties. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And be sort of like smoldering about it. Like, I think you yeah. do a great he job. He does a good smolder. 
Yeah. 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 Okay. Is it, am I up? Yes. <laughs> okay. So what I would want to see, which I very much would not have the skill to do. Um, but what I really liked about this was sort of the relationship between sort of the real life and the fiction and also the way that it was related to specific plays that actually exist in the world. Mm-hmm. So the the setup with having two kind of like rival playhouses, I really like that. But I wanted it to be two rival playhouses where you have two playwrights. Maybe it's like Christopher Marlowe and William Shakespeare, where they're kind of writing plays that are sort of subtly making fun of each other or subtly making fun of other people involved in the rival playhouse. Um, so instead of it being like flirtation through the stage, it's like vague insults, but they don't have a terrible relationship. They're just rivals and they kind of think it's funny. So they'll go and see each other's plays and then be like, oh my gosh, rude. I'm going to write this next thing into my play. Then as that's happening, it gradually gets less antagonistic and more sort of Mm. flirtatious. And while the um, plays are getting like more flirtatious in terms of the way the plays are referencing the rival playhouse and the rival playwright, you also have two actors who are also then having their own flirtation within the plays themselves. Mm. So they're like two love stories going on, one that's between two actors and one that's two between two playwrights. And because I didn't want Viola to be written out of this narrative, Viola would be the other, uh, would be like the one of the actors who's like, mm. yeah. And she's pretending to be a man for the stage. So it's like, Thomas Kent is doing things. And there's another actor who's also in the same situation. So they both think that the other one is just sort of like a normal, you know, actor on the stage when it actually is a situation where a woman has like this other identity where they're mm. then like on the stage together. Yeah. Mm. And, and you got some nice enemies to lovers elements. You have two love stories that in the end, everything's fine. That's very Shakespearean that you've got the kind of no, double marriage at the end, story. or at least double yeah, establishing double, of a yeah, relationship. Yeah, I mean, marriage would be asking a lot, but like double like relationship. I mean, if you now. probably, probably not legal marriage in the yeah, in Elizabeth yeah. in England. Marriage but, in the spiritual sense. But but the yeah. thing is, I don't think I would have the skill at all to attempt to write this because I don't know Shakespeare plays well enough. So I wouldn't be able to think of like funny things that would be that actually because I think it'd be really funny if someone could do that write a story like this where there were things that actually came from Shakespeare plays but in Mm -hmm. the context of your fictional story we're making fun of someone that Mm. they knew yeah yeah somebody I would read that that sounds great (laughs) yeah I would definitely read that (laughs) shall I do mine now Yes. yes okay so I was inspired by our earlier discussion and what I would like to suggest is a fan fiction of Shakespeare and love in which instead of turning back into Viola de Lesseps uh, Thomas Kent remains Thomas Kent and begin and sort of just starts a new life as a man which maybe any way he finds chimes more with his gender identity and allows him to pursue his chosen profession Uh, meanwhile he sort of gets into this relationship with Shakespeare and they grow old together Together. And uh, eventually Shakespeare writes King Lear, in which Kent is the name of sort of this old hanger on, this faithful follower of King Lear. And so we are sort of looking back on the relationship from this later perspective in which they've had this full life together. Um, Sort of maybe, I don't know, maybe Shakespeare is starting to identify with King Lear, like feeling like he's maybe losing his mind a little bit. This doesn't even work in the chronology of Shakespeare's life because <laughs> that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But whatever, That's it fine. doesn't matter. Anyway, um, and it turns out that this play, which is about sort of this devoted relationship, um, you know, between a king and his faithful follower is a way for him to reflect upon his happy life with Thomas Kent. Um, yeah. Cleo, I love that so That sounds lovely. It is a great, um, it is so sad that Cleo is not actively writing fan fiction on AO3. I know. I mean, I think, yeah. 
I think also uh, listeners of our pod will know that this is not a very characteristic story for me because I like to have a couple of plot twists. Um, and so I'm not <laughs> also, sure I feel like that was very straightforward, but it was very, that's really sweet. And I also like that again, it's like playing on something that actually exists in a real Shakespeare play. And then, yeah, yeah. Seeing how it could like reflect this reality. And also what a nice ending to have given our kids. Yeah. That's so sweet. Yeah, and Thomas yeah. And I lives. <laughs> I feel like you should like get the studio to like make this as like a like sequel that you know fucks a little bit with the uh, with the ending. I think you know. No, they have a lot to apologize for. We should yeah. we should try to guilt them into making it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. You know, that and, will be yeah. your strongly worded letter. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and, well, Joseph Fiennes has a different vibe now, which which might work. I have to think about whether Wait, I think what it is works. he up to now. I don't know what's. Uh, I mean, he's he was like the commander in The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, sorry, I don't oh, remember right. who different actors are in different. I never movies. watched that, so I feel like I haven't seen contemporary Joseph Fiennes. <laughs> All I have is this perfect image of him in 1998. Mm, I feel like especially because really it's also it's such an unpleasant character. He really like ruins Joseph Fiennes. Like Joseph oh. Fiennes really ruins he young ruined Joseph Fiennes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, but it was like it's like it was like hard to be like to like I don't know like re-embrace like young like open-shirted Joseph Fiennes so so rate the film on a scale of one to five based on whatever purely subjective criteria we see fit so clear I'm going to we're going to go into reverse order now so clear I'm gonna have you go first and put you on the spot can I give half stars Yes, you can. Points. Okay. You can definitely uh, give half points. Okay. I feel like this is very high, especially <laughs> after everything that we've discussed, but I just have such a sentimental attachment mm-hmm. to this movie and I admire its dexterity and wit. And so I'm going to give it a four and a half. Okay. I'm sorry. Oh, I wow. Out high. of five. Okay. Yeah. I'm especially impressed because Galileo rates fan fiction pairing <laughs> so low. Um, what you can actually get clear excited about is is Shakespeare and love we haven't been reading about like Shakespeare maybe that's the that's true maybe maybe that's that's the the problem maybe that's the problem here there should have been more Shakespeare you could do there's Shakespeare fan fiction isn't there like you could I mean there's published Shakespeare fan fiction at this point it's like is it play or is about like the person or yeah i mean there's like published stuff that's basically shakespeare fan fiction isn't there i mean the the novel hamnet you can yeah. <laughs> not laugh at the name hamnet <laughs> what's wrong with me well do you think Especially hamlet cons- is funny no see that's hamnet the thing i think i think i never heard the word the name hamlet before like if i never that's it i never that was just erased from my memory and someone said there's someone named hamlet i would start laughing however because it like has existed in my brain for so long it's no longer funny but hamlet yeah. in isolation i don't have that association with knowing so. that there is a dead child called hamlet you're like yeah in isolation that is so funny you know, i think to me. children dying <laughs> <laughs> I'm not cutting that, yeah, just so I you're aware. Need to talk about <laughs> anyway. Um, and my, my that, dog is named, my dog is named Ophelia, so I feel like I have a strong connection with Hamlet. My sense. cousin's child is called Ophelia. Oh. They call her Ophi for short. Not Opie. Oh, I call the dog, uh, yeah, I call, I call the dog Opie for short. All uh, right. Yes, and we're at your, your rating. Okay, so... 
this this movie definitely my like it, it definitely exceeded my expectations so on a like harry potter scale i'm giving it an e just kidding anyway um <laughs> let's talk about problematic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah sorry trying to get Sarah's podcast canceled. Okay. No. <laughs> um, yeah, it definitely exceeded my expectations in that I remember seeing it a long time ago, but I don't think I saw it all the way through. Maybe I just saw like half of it and I don't have this like strong sentimental connection to it. Like Cleo did, who'd like saw it young and really enjoyed it. So I was kind of like, oh yeah, I'll watch this. Um, and then I found myself like genuinely laughing during parts of it. I thought it was like mm. very genuinely comedic especially Ben Affleck for some reason. Um, and I always really love the concept of identity porn, mm-hmm. but I also think there was not enough identity porn in this. So I'm giving it a three, mostly points for identity porn and Ben Affleck. Okay. I think I'm settling on maybe like a 3.5 because I was, I was also sort of, I, I liked this when I was younger and I think I saw it like when it came out or not long after. And I think I sort of assumed that it wouldn't really hold up and there are problems with it. I, I find Shakespeare as a character actually intensely unsympathetic and annoying in a lot of ways. Um, but I like a lot of the other characters. Violet to have a happy ending, but I'll, even though she doesn't have that much of a personality, but I, I care more about her personality. No, that's true. Like he has a bad personality. Um, like I, nobody should date him. Actually, like her happy ending is not is not going to Virginia, but I maybe also not is he dating the stage. Sorry. I think it's that, <laughs> which is why you shouldn't date him, uh, because he really you will always come second to the stage. And then you'll get the second best bed. <laughs> I mean, at this point, his like girlfriend's down to like the third best bed. The stage gets one. That that's what happened to his best bed. Maybe he donated it to he the theater as a prop for the stage. Yeah, I could I could see that. I, I don't think there's any evidence of that, but I think it would be great if it <laughs> happened. Uh, I'm just going to assume that that happened. So that he'd already just like given his first his best bed away to the theater. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but yes, my justification of my 3.5, I think there is a lot of ways in which it was better than I expected. I think the dialogue is really fantastic and funny. I think there's a lot of excellent performances. Like, I, I think I think it'd be like repetition of like the line, like, you know, it'll turn out well, how, I don't know, it's a mystery. It was like, excellent. timing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think given that it's, deserves you know higher than I might have initially anticipated but that I think still it's kind of losing some points for me uh probably kind of mostly for the sort of like no homo-ness hmm. of a lot of it yeah yeah so they like went out of their way to write which I guess they probably did sort of went out of their way to write in it's not as yeah. if it was sort of like they hadn't even considered it it was like there are aspects of this plot that are sort of inherently queer and you have like people being perceived as a different gender than maybe they were perceived in other contexts in their life yeah and they like really made sure that like no one gets yeah they seem really concerned with the possibility of like how can we get rid of as many of the queer undertones of this story as humanly possible so it's yeah losing i would say like that's where it definitely loses some points for me right cleo thank you so much for joining me are there places where the listeners could find you on our our podcast obviously Um, yeah, so we we have a podcast, Cleo slash Maria fan fiction podcast, where we review fan fiction. 
And we're really excited to announce that in the coming month, um, we are going to have Sarah as a guest on our podcast as our canon expert for Lord of the Rings. Yes. Based on when this is actually be released. I'm not sure exactly. It might've already happened. Never mind. Maybe this is not the time to announce (laughs) or be like, or did we already talk about that in the beginning of a recording too? I don't know. We've been recording for a while. I don't remember. I'm a little bit. Yeah. So this might come out like sort of in the middle maybe of, (laughs) but find us online again. Yeah. But like cross promotion, you should listen to both. Yeah. Do either of you have anything yet individually that you were I also am on TikTok at, at pardon underscore me, but me is spelled M-I, so pardon underscore M-I, and I do like medieval humor TikToks. Yeah, and I have another podcast called Studies in Taylor Swift, which is on a bit of a hiatus right now, but I'm hoping to get back to it because I need Presumably to address you have a lot important of new material that just appeared. Yeah, Chill. That from the, Chill. New, the new release, the release of Midnight's, so stay tuned or subscribe, Excellent. I guess. Yeah, that would be Excellent. the easiest way to stay tuned is to subscribe. <laughs> then you can, then your, your podcatcher app will stay tuned for you. Exactly. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to this as well if you have not already and rate and review on your podcatcher of choice and I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. And please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join the Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Itchdecker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Cleo, Murray, thank you again. Thank you for having us. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Woohoo! Yay. (laughs) Go on. Shakespeare in love. Romeo and Juliet. Juliet? You mean it? Just a suggestion.